God is good. Amen. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to go back into our series on worship. And what we've been doing is we've been surveying the whole Bible, basically, from Genesis to Revelation and stopping at, at various points and places along the storyline uh, where it talks about worship, where, where the Bible is teaching or some event happens that, that has to do that would instruct us in worshiping God. And so we're going to jump into that series. We haven't been in this series since I looked at it. The last Sunday that we were in this was November the 20th, before Thanksgiving, November 20th. Uh, partly the reason we haven't been in it on Sunday nights is because of schedule and, and just things that have been going on. But part of it is because I have been not wanting to uh, preach this message, the one that was coming up next. And so I've been kind of putting it off uh, because it is a, um, it's a message I didn't want to preach. So let's just put it that way. Uh, it's not an easy message. It's a convicting message. So I'm just warning you ahead of time. This is your airbag. I'm putting a little airbag around this tonight. Uh, where we are in the storyline, as we've been looking at worship, we've seen that there have been some real high points along the way. We've seen, for example, Abraham and the way he worshiped God. We've seen Moses, how God used Moses to establish the proper worship of God with his people in the wilderness. We saw how God delivered his people from Egypt so that they could go out and literally said, go out and worship me is why God set his people free. We saw how uh, David worshiped the Lord in his personal life and we talked about developing that personal life of worship. Uh, we saw that Solomon built the temple and, and really that was a high moment when, when God's spirit came and and inhabited the temple that Solomon had built for him. And then we saw also, we've seen also how Josiah, King Josiah, uh, brought these reforms to uh, the people of Israel when they had strayed, that God raised up a, a king who would be faithful to him, who would lead the people, the nation, back into faithfulness unto God. Those are some of the high marks that we've seen in worship. But we've also sort of been going back and forth and and also gone through some valleys as we saw how Cain, the first time we really see uh, uh, somebody trying to worship God, that their worship is not accepted because they are not worshiping God the way that he had prescribed. That was Cain. We saw Uzzah, who, who carelessly reached out his hand to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And in that place and in that moment, he was struck dead because of his carelessness. We saw Ahab who uh, led the nation of Israel, the, the northern kingdom, into idolatry. And so there's been these high points where God's people have been faithful and, and have worshiped God in, in spirit and in truth. And then there's been these valleys, these low points. And where we are in the story is one of those low points. It is one of those valleys. You'll recall that where we left the series off was, I'm sure you all recall this from two and a half months ago. You all recall that we were in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 29. And so why don't we flip back there? Let's, let's, let's begin where we left off, Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah chapter 29. 
The whole reason we're doing this study on worship is because we want to be a people who rightly worships God. We are all created in the image of God. We're all created to be in fellowship with God. But as we open God's word, his revelation to us, his self-disclosure to us, we see there are, are ways of worshiping God that he has prescribed, that he has blessed. And we see there are idolatrous ways, ways that, that, that are anathema to God, ways that are, are contrary to God that people have tried to employ even in the worship of God. And so we want, as Jesus taught, that the Father is seeking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, we too want to be people like that, who worship God not just outwardly, but inwardly in our spirit, not just the outward expression, not just the, the songs that we would sing, but that it would truly be our hearts being poured out to God in worship, in spirit, but also in truth, worshiping God rightly, as he has prescribed in his word. In Isaiah chapter 29 and in verse 13, it says this, the Lord said, this people, Isaiah prophesying to the children of Israel, this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And so here Isaiah is talking about his generation. Jesus later up will quote, later on will quote from Isaiah. We see that in Matthew chapter 15. And say that Isaiah's prophecy not only applied to his generation, but applied to the first century generation that Jesus lived in as well. A people... Who, who, who only pay lip service to God, who only have an at, outward form of religion, but have no heart for God. He says their lips, they honor me with their lips, they draw near to me with their mouth, while their hearts are far from me. Listen, God does not care at all about our outward expressions of worship if our hearts are not in it. If our hearts are not there, he doesn't care if our body is here, but our hearts are watching the football game. Is there a football game tonight? I don't even know. That's next Sunday. Okay. Right? That, that, that he, it, it's spirit and truth. It's, it's, it's not just with our lips, but it's with our hearts. It's, very, it's a very easy thing to pay lip service to God. It, it doesn't require a whole lot of us to sing a few songs. It's not a huge sacrifice to engage in the outward religiosity of worship. I don't have to pay a huge price. But to truly serve God, to truly worship Him, to truly follow Him, Jesus says... We must take up our cross. It's like a dead man walking to truly follow God, to truly follow Christ. And here in Isaiah's day, they've got this elaborate worship going on. Sacrifices, offerings of incense, ritual cleansing, a dietary code, 
fellowship offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, all of this different religious activity, but no heart at all. Their hearts were not in it. And so though they have this formal expression of worship, what we also see in the same breath that they're offering worship unto God, unto Yahweh, they also offer worship up to Baal and to Molech and to the Ashtaroth and to all these other moon goddesses. And that, that Yahweh, the one true God, he was just one of all the gods that they were worshiping. So not only were they worshiping God in, in a form of worship, their hearts were not in it, but then they were committing idolatry. So their worship was all fake. It was insincere. Because the very first commandment that God had given to his people when he delivered them out of Egypt, when he delivered them out of bondage, the very first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. So that to engage in some sort of worship to God, yet while having other gods, is not to worship God at all. It's insincere. It's, it's fake. It's just a show. It's just a pretense. And it's the exact opposite of what the Father is looking for, spirit and in truth. And so the prophets, God sent prophets who would go and declare this message to his people, calling his people back to faithfulness, calling his people to repentance, calling his people to put away the idols, to put away the false gods, that their hearts would be solely devoted to the one true God that they were in covenant with. And so the story of the prophets is really a story of calls to repentance. And this is where we are picking up the story here tonight. Uh, moving on from Isaiah, we're moving now into the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied to primarily uh, Judah, the, the southern kingdom, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, during the period of the, the split kingdom. And he prophesied between the years of 650 to, to 570 B.C. And God sent Jeremiah really as one last warning. One final warning. One last messenger to call his people back to faithfulness. Pleading with his people. Pleading with them. In fact, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because of the sad nature of his prophecies and the great grief that he suffered for proclaiming them. And so I want to do a, a little bit of a survey this evening through Jeremiah. We can start in, in chapter 1, Jeremiah. I want to survey just a few passages so you can get the, the flavor for what's happening here. Because at the end of Jeremiah's ministry, something cataclysmic happened. Something that informs us about worship. It was so shocking to the people of his day. And likewise, it should uh, disturb us. It, it should make us uncomfortable. It, it should show us that 
when we deal with God, we need to take it seriously. That our dealings with God are not something to be treated casually. We see that in Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. Jeremiah begins chapter 1 verse 3 with God telling Jeremiah that he had been called since before he was born. Jeremiah 1 verse 5, the Lord says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then Jeremiah says, God, behold, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I am only a youth. But God said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all who I will send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then he says that the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overflow to overthrow, to build, and to plant. Verse 19, Jeremiah is told that the people he prophesies to, verse 19, that they will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. So Jeremiah is given this word to go and to declare to God's people and to the wider national community. And and we see that in the later chapters of Jeremiah. We're not going to look at that specifically tonight. But God makes a promise to Jeremiah that he is going to protect him, that he is going to watch over him. And he does. There are many times where Jeremiah is, there are attempts made on his life. There's one time where he's even thrown into a pit, a cistern, a dried out well, where they used to throw people uh, to, to, and leave them there to die, and they threw Jeremiah into that pit as well. I don't know if you can imagine what a pit like that would be like, being thrown into a, uh, a dried out well full of mud and murk with decomposing bodies all around you. Jeremiah was thrown in there, but God rescued him. God delivered him. That kind of gives you an idea of the nature of his prophetic ministry. How mad would you have to make someone to have them throw you into a place like that? So let's, let's just look at a few. We're, we're going to survey through these quickly. Jeremiah 2.11, I'm just going to call out some passages and we'll just go through them. Jeremiah 2.11, it says, Has a nation changed its gods? Even though they are no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. That though they had been, Israel had been delivered from Egypt, led through the Red Sea, led through the wilderness, delivered into the promised land, given God's word, given God's law, given the tabernacle, given God's presence, that they had exchanged the worship of the one true God for the worship of gods who are not gods, false gods, false idols. In chapter 3, verse 1, 
He says that Israel has played the whore with many lovers. This is the way that God views Israel. God's covenant people have always been described as his bride. Just as the church today is the bride of Christ, so the, the, the people of God under the old covenant were also called God's bride. But he says, you've gone away from me. You've, you've been unfaithful to me. Nevertheless, in verse 12, God, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, God says, return, faithless Israel, and I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless Israel, declares the Lord. For I am your master. I will take you from one city, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. God offers this opportunity to return to him. That when Jeremiah goes out and he goes out with his word of of judgment, a word of repentance, but he calls Israel back. God says, I will be merciful to you. I will show you mercy if you will only come back to me. If we go to chapter six, as as, as it progresses through his ministry, The people do not receive the word. Chapter 6, verse 10. It says, Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn, and they take no pleasure in it. That though God had given them his word, his written word, his prophetic word, they would not listen, they would not open their ears, and it was an object of scorn to them. Therefore, verse 20 of chapter six, he tells them, your burnt offerings are not acceptable to me, nor are your sacrifices pleasing to me. Let's go to chapter seven, verse 30. Begins to list some of the sins that they have committed. Chapter seven, verse 30 says, the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things, that's their idols, in the house that is called by my name, that's the temple, to defile it. That they brought idols into the temple that was dedicated by Solomon, where God's glory filled, set apart as a place holy as unto the Lord, to worship God. They had brought these idols into them of these false gods, these Really, the, the, the New Testament tells us that for every idol that there's de- demonic powers and presence behind it, defiling God's house, defiling God's name. And if that were not bad enough, it goes on to say in verse 3 that in the valley of the sons of Hinnom that they burned their sons and their daughters in the fire. The two, their false gods, they went all the way to the point where they were offering their children as sacrifices. Offering their children as sacrifice to these false gods. Therefore, 
God begins to pronounce judgment upon them. If they will not repent, God will bring them judgment. Chapter 9, verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 13. The Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but they've stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. I just draw that out to you again as a contrast to the culture that we live in today that says to follow your own heart. That's what they were doing. They were not following God's word. They forsook his word. They would not walk in obedience to his ways. Instead, they followed their own hearts. And when you follow your own sinful heart, it leads you after idols. We could go on. I think you get the idea. Let's skip ahead to chapter 19. Chapter 19. It says, uh, verse 4, because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence, see here that they're even offering child sacrifice in God's temple. Verse 5, and they have built the high places of Baal to turn their sons into to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Verse 6, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall be no more. Verse, uh, chapter, uh, verse 7, it says, And in this place I will make void the plains of Judah and Jerusalem and will cause their people to, to fall by the sword before their enemies. By the hand of those who seek their life, I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the earth. Verse 8, and I will make this city a horror, literally a desolation, a thing to be hissed at, and everyone who passes by will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. It goes on to talk about the, the, the horrible days that are coming because of their wicked and evil deeds. There, there is nothing more deplorable to God than idolatry and offering up of your children in the service of your idols is the most deplorable of all idol practices. What I find interesting is that in the midst of this very dark book are most people's favorite Bible verse. Right? I mean, probably half of you in here, your favorite Bible verse is from Jeremiah. Jeremiah, what? 29.11. Jeremiah 29.11 is like the one bright spot in this blazing sea of blackness. It, 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 it shines so brightly because of its backdrop. And it is a promise that God makes in the midst of all of these judgments of bringing destruction, that they, the, the Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, that the temple is going to be destroyed, 
that God's people are going to be led into exile and into captivity for the sins that they have committed and because they refuse to come back to him. In the midst of all of that, God made a promise. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place from which I sent you. And so here he, he makes a promise that even though they're going into exile, even though they're being led away, even though this great disaster and destruction is going to come upon them, that God is not going to destroy them. God is not done with them, but that he is disciplining them and that he is going to lead them and to teach them to worship him fully. And so Jeremiah 29, 11, most people don't know the context of it, but the reason it does shine so brightly is because it is against such a dark backdrop. And so ultimately what we see in, ends up happening we could read this account in 2 Kings 25. We won't take time to turn there tonight. But in 587 B.C., 587 years before Christ, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, comes, surrounds Jerusalem, lays siege to the city, destroys the walls, destroys the temple, destroys the palace, lays waste to the city as God's judgment, righteous judgment upon his covenant-breaking people. The king that was alive in those times who <laughs> tried on multiple occasions to kill Jeremiah suffered a horrible fate. He had, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar came and captured this king. His name was King Zedekiah. He had Zedekiah's own children murdered in front of him and then he plucked out his eyes so that the final thing that he ever saw in his life was the death of his own kids. The horrible and barbaric uh, judgment and, and, and practices that were done to them because they would not heed the word of God. Now, it's difficult, as hard as that is for us to hear and process, it was even more difficult for the people of Jeremiah's day to imagine. They could not even fathom that Jerusalem, the city of God, would be destroyed. That the place where God said his name would dwell, where, where he had poured out his spirit into the temple, where where, where, where Solomon had, had dedicated and, and all of the wonderful things that had happened there, the idea that that could be destroyed, God's city, God's habitation, 
there would have been so much devastation and confusion over this event. The, the building and the dedication of the temple had been the high point, the pinnacle of God's blessing and covenant with Israel. And for 400 years, this had been the center of their worship. And so the idea that God's temple would be destroyed was incomprehensible. They, they couldn't even fathom such an idea happening. Would have seemed to them have, to have been an impossibility. But to, on top of that, not only that God would, his temple would be destroyed, and not only that he would allow it, but that God would be the one who caused it. That God would be the one who brought it, this destruction, upon his own temple. Would have been a mind-blowing reality to the covenant people of God. They would have been asking questions like, what does this mean? Has God abandoned us? Has God forsaken us? Have his promises failed? God promised that, that there would be a descendant that would sit upon David's throne and that he would reign over a kingdom without end. That there's no more Jerusalem, there's no more king, there's no more kingdom. Has God failed us? Has he forsaken us? All of the promises that he has made, the temple, the city, the kingdom, all lying in dust and ashes. And this is why God makes this promise in Jeremiah 20, 29, 11. There is a future and there is a hope for you. Though the city, though, though it all may be in ashes, there is a future for you. That's why people love that verse. Because when we go through devastating times in life, and it seems like our life is in ashes, we can still know that God has a future for us. Amen. Well, this is as far as I want to go in the story tonight. We'll, we'll, we'll pick it up next week with Israel in Babylon as far as the storyline goes. But there's three things I want to really, as we conclude tonight, press into our hearts about worship that we need to learn from this destruction of the temple. Three lessons that God wants to teach us from this very sad story. I just thought of a fourth one. This, is, this, this, this has the potential for, uh, to be lengthy. Let's start with uh, the fourth one I just thought of. There is no blessing in disobedience to God's word. If we willfully disobey the word of God, we will not live in the blessing of God. God cannot bless disobedience. He can't. It's absolutely against his nature. To bless rebellion, he cannot do it. And so those who, God has promised that those who will live in covenant faithfulness with him, obeying his word, will experience his blessing in their life. Amen? That's, that's, that's just the freebie that I just thought of. Let's go to point number one that this teaches us. Number one, God is not playing games. God is not playing games. When God says, no other gods before me, he means no other gods before me. 
God means business, especially for those who are in covenant with him, which is us here tonight. Remember how I opened tonight? Anybody here love Jesus? We all said, yes. That, that means that we're in covenant with God. We're in covenant with God. God is not playing games with his covenant people. And there are far too many Christians who are only playing religious games with God. They are going through the motions of religious activities, but their hearts are far from God. That was what was going on in Isaiah's day. That's what was going on in Jeremiah's day. That was what was going on in Jesus' day. And I fear that that is also happening in our day as well. Fifty years ago, in this nation, we speak to this nation because this is where we're at. Fifty years ago, 90% of the population of this nation claimed to be Christian. How in the world do we see, how, how, how is it possible for us to live in the world that we live in today when 50 years ago, 90% professed Christ? I'll tell you how. There was a whole lot of people playing religious games whose hearts were not towards God who had an outward form of religiosity, who would go to church, who would say the prayers, but it wasn't in their hearts. Today, that number, shockingly, I find it shocking, is 60-something percent. But when I look at our nation, it, I have a hard time believing that even a small minority have genuine faith, but still 60% profess faith in Christ. A lot of people playing religious games. A lot of people going through motions with no desire for God, no desire for his word, no desire to walk in faithfulness and obedience with him. They may be playing games with God, but hear me in this, God is not playing games with us. God is not a man that he should be trifled with. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body. That we should not have the fear of man. We as God's people, we as covenant people should have no fear of any person. Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Jesus' words. The writer of Hebrews says this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There are too many Christians who treat religion like it's a hobby, and like the church is their club and we share an affinity for religious activities. Like a chess club or a 
paramotoring club or a, you know, knitting club. Oh, I've got my religious club. Yeah, we all kind of enjoy, you know, talking about the Bible stories and, you know, good principles for life. No, friends. We are dealing with the living God. The one who spoke and in obedience to his word, the universe came into being. We are dealing with the one whom Jesus says can destroy both soul and body. You see, in ancient Israel, they had no fear of God. They had adopted this sort of casual approach of outward religious expression with no heart towards the Lord, no tenderness. They were hard-hearted. And like ancient Israel with no fear of God, there are many in Christ's church who share in that trait, who share that trait of no fear of God before their eyes. Though they may name the name of Christ, though they may profess to be Christians, their lives are not marked by the fear of God. And in that, they share that in common with those who heard the voice of Jeremiah prophesy in their streets. And like Uzzah, who casually reached out his hand to lay hold of the Ark of the Covenant, Casual Christians today carelessly approach the Lord's table and handle the most precious of things in the most carnal of ways. God is not playing games. We best make sure that we aren't either. Number two, not only is God not playing games, but secondly, this shows us this story of, of God bringing judgment upon his people, destroying that city, destroying that temple. It shows us the incredible lengths that God is willing to go to to accomplish his purpose. The incredible lengths that God is willing to go to to accomplish his purpose. We know his ultimate purpose in, in working with the nation of Israel and all that he was doing was to bring his son Jesus into the world who would die for the sins of mankind, to redeem the nations of the world back to himself. That's what God is working towards. And God will go to incredible lengths to accomplish that purpose. And that God is sovereign in accomplishing his purpose. And so even though the nation of Babylon, a wicked nation, God even uses them to accomplish his purpose. God can use anything to accomplish his purpose. And for us, what this means is that Christ will sanctify his church by any means he deems necessary. When Christ returns, he's not coming back for a soiled bride. Christ is not coming back for an adulterous lover. No, the book of Ephesians tells us that when Christ returns, he will present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is going to produce holiness in his covenant people. 
and he will use any means that he deems necessary, and he will use all things at his disposal to accomplish this, things that we would say are good and things that we would say are bad. How do I know that? Well, Romans 8.28 says that God works all things. That's the good and the bad, right? Isn't that what Romans 28 says? That God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But do you know what the good is that he's working all things towards? Well, verse 29 of Romans 8 tells us that we would be conformed into the image of his son. That's the good God's working for. That he is producing Christ in us. That he is making us holy. That he is making us sanctified. And he will use whatever he wants to use. He can use the good and he will use the evil. He will use the beautiful and he will use the ugly. He will use the fruitful and he will even use the ashes of our life to produce the character of Christ in us. That is how committed he is to us. Now, God is not the author of evil, but he will use it to accomplish his good plan and purpose. The greatest example of this is the cross. The cross, the greatest act of evil that humanity has ever done, but through the greatest act of evil, God is producing in the world the greatest good that has ever been known. God uses all things to accomplish his purpose and he will go to great lengths to see that his people are holy and sanctified, not idolatrous, not adulterous. Number three. Those two were easy. Number three. We, we are now God's temple. We, the Bible says, the people of God, the body of Christ, we are now the temple where God's spirit dwells. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you look at how seriously God took what happened in that temple in that day under the old covenant, which was passing away, which was temporary, which was only foreshadowing and pointing towards and bringing about our day, the, the day that Abraham longed to see, the day that Moses longed to see. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. That should put the fear of God in us. You, you look at what happened, the, 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 the discipline that God brought to his people his old, in the old covenant for the way that they polluted the temple. And you have to, it, it should give you great pause knowing now that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I want to close by looking at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 tonight. Of course, this comes on the heels of Hebrews chapter 11, and we did, I don't know, a 20, 30-week series moving through Hebrews 11, the, the hall of fame 
the hall of faith of, of, of I, I can't even think how to say that right now. The hall of fame of the heroes of the faith. Anyway, uh, where, where he, he talked about all of those people who did all of these things by faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, because of all of that, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. Let us run our race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. Just as Abraham had a race to run, just as Moses had a race to run, just as Isaiah and Jeremiah and David and Ezekiel and every faithful man and woman of God throughout the ages had a race to run, so do we. That God is still working through his people today. That I too and you too have a race to run. So therefore, let us lay aside the weights. Let us lay aside the sin that holds us back from running our race. And instead, let us look unto Christ. Let us not get distracted looking to the left or to the right, but let us look unto Christ as we run our race, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, he says, Consider him, that is Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Look, he's saying this race we have to run, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's day by day. Every day is like a step. Sometimes running that marathon, it can seem like a crawl. And he says, don't grow weary in doing it. And what's going to keep you from growing weary? Keeping your eyes fixed on Christ and seeing how he endured and seeing how he persevered, and seeing how he didn't give in the towel will help us to endure and not grow faint-hearted. Verse 4, he says, in your struggle against sin. Listen, struggling against sin or, or the battle that we face in our life against sin, it is a struggle. It is a fight. Holiness is a fight that we have to wage with the power of the Spirit, wage with the sword of the Spirit. It is a struggle. It is a wrestling match. Paul says, I buffet my body to keep it submitted to the Word of God. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood he says in Jesus' struggle, he had to shed his own blood. In ours, we don't have to because his blood was shed for us. But in verse 5, and this is the point I was trying to get to. Verse 5, he says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Listen, we're sons and daughters. We're children of God. But here he quotes from Proverbs 3. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved, reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. If we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, 
part of God's covenant people, we can expect and anticipate the discipline of the Lord. Verse 7, it says, for, it is for discipline that you have to endure, but that God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Christ will discipline us in this life to produce holiness in us because we are the temple where his spirit dwells. And God will not share his temple with idols. God will not share. He doesn't have roommates. He will not allow his people to set up idols in their life. And so I have to ask the question, where are you indulging in sin Where are you not battling sin in your life? Where are you giving in? Where are you compromising with the world? Don't you understand that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit where God's very presence dwells? We must, in the power of the Spirit, cleanse ourselves, rid ourselves of sin and filth and pursue righteousness and holiness with passion because he is worthy of nothing less. And this is worship when we submit all of our lives to him, when we make our lives an open book to him, when we give our hearts fully and completely to him. He is worth nothing less than all that we have and all that we are. He is worthy. Shall the one who redeemed me, who paid the price for my life, who ransomed me, will he have less than all of me? Will I give him less than all that he deserves? Will I split my affections between Christ and the stock market, and the Republican Party, and and my birthday party for whatever, Will, will, will my affections be split? Or will I look unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of my faith? Who will you serve? Will I allow my heart to be pulled away by my relationship with this person or that person? Or will I have a heart singly devoted to serving the one who died and rose again to redeem my life? He deserves all of me. Therefore, I must use the tools that he has given me, his word, his spirit, the community of his church, to lay to rest sin in my life 
that I would be spotless as a spotless bride, as a pure virgin before him. What I have found in my 42 years of life is that giving all of me to the Lord looks different at 42 than it did at 32. That giving all of me to the Lord at 32 looked different than 22. That giving all of me to the Lord looked different at 22 than at 12. That as we walk with the Lord, what all of me looks like I just, the Lord reveals more and more and more pieces of my heart that I thought were his that I realized that I'm still holding on to. And so I'm not asking anybody to give all of somebody else. I'm not asking you to compare yourself to anybody else. But I'm saying, have you given all of you to Christ? Does he have all of you? Or are your affections split? Are there idols in your life? Are there things that have taken precedence over him? Is he number one in your life or is there something or someone else? And if there is something or someone else, we must lay that down. We sang that song tonight. We opened tonight with that song. Or it was our second song. Or maybe that we sang that this morning. Or maybe we didn't sing it at all. I lay me down. Did we sing that today? This morning. morning. Okay, this morning. We sang it this morning. I'm not mad. I lay me down. I'm not my own. I belong to you alone. I lay myself down. Listen, many of you have made that commitment to the Lord. You've, You've made that offering to the Lord. But maybe it was 10 years ago. And today, your life looks way different than it did 10 years ago. At least mine does. And so we are constantly in this fellowship with the Lord, running our race. And if we're not careful, there will be little idols that creep up along the way. And we must daily, it seems to me, daily reaffirm our covenant with the Lord where we say, you are my God and all of me belongs to you. And so I want to invite you tonight to once again make that commitment to the Lord, that dedication to the Lord, that all of me belongs to you. All of me. You deserve all of my worship. You deserve all of my praise. You deserve all of my focus. You deserve all of my adoration, singly and solely devoted to the Lord. Amen. I invite you to stand with me tonight. I know this is a heavy message. Anytime you're preaching from the prophets, it's going to be a heavy message. Uh, But I pray that the Lord has spoken to your heart this evening, pricked your heart in some way. Father, we just, Lord, we just ask you to work in us. God, if there's any area in our life, Lord, that is idolatrous, Lord, that, that, is stealing our affections away from you, Lord, that you would convict us right now by your spirit. Lord, we we don't want to be a people who are only Christian in name but not in heart. God, we don't want to be a people that, 
know all the right things, know all the verses, know when to stand, know when to sit, know when to say amen, know when to, to pray, know when to do all these things, but our heart is not in it. Lord, if there are things in our heart that has drawn our, our affections away from you, God, that you would convict us right now, that you would reveal those to us right now, that you would expose in our hearts any any idolatry, any affections that are, are wrongly ordered. Lord, sometimes in, the, in this fallen world, in this broken body that we live in, Lord, sometimes in the flesh, Lord, we, we, we wrongly order our affections. So it's not that we love the wrong things, but we love the things that we should love in the wrong order. And so, Lord, if we've done that, Lord, show us. Show us, Lord, where in our life where you are not number one, where in our life where we are not seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, thank you that you invite us by your grace to walk with you and fellowship with you. Lord, that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation to invite us to walk in repentance and in faith and in fellowship. So Lord, pour out your grace, pour out your mercy, pour out your power, Lord, that we would be able to, to live the sanctified life that you have called us to live. Lord, we will not be perfect this side of heaven, but you are perfecting us nonetheless. And that we would pursue pursue you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, yeah. Bless the Lord. I would encourage you if, uh, if, if, if the Lord is, is dealing with your heart the way he's dealing with mine, uh, do, not, do, not, do not go to bed tonight without doing some business with the Lord, without spending some time in prayer. Um, Jesus told the parable of the, the sower and he scattered, he scattered seed and the seed is good, the word is good seed, but so quickly the, the birds would come and devour it and, and God can do a work in our life and we can walk out the door and forget that anything ever even happened. And so I would encourage you before, if the Lord's dealing with your heart, before uh, you you're, go off to sleep tonight to really just spend a few minutes with the Lord and and ask for him to, to seal that up in your heart. Amen.